And when you say the black economy is parallel, what you imply is that it is parallel to the white economy. That means black economy and white economy don't meet. But that is not correct because in India, in most activities, black incomes and white incomes are generated uh, simultaneously. I believe that the uh, path told by Gandhi was the one that we need at this point of time, where he talked about you know creating movement, you know, and uh, he talked about you know uh, how every person has to be accountable, every person has to keep their head high. Those who generate black income, they feel that they have hidden the crack very well, and because there are 90 tax tables, they can take their money out of the country and then bring it back to the Mauritius route, etc. What in what is called round tripping. So you know it's not easy to track because you know this Hawala route that is taken goes through six different layers. So you take your money out from here to say Hawaii, from there to Bermuda, from there to Jersey Island, then to Cayman Island, and then to Switzerland. Greetings everyone. Welcome you to another episode of The Bigger Picture. Today we have Professor Arun Kumar on board with us. Professor Arun Kumar is the Malcolm Adesicia Chair Professor at the Institute of Social Sciences and has also served as a professor in the Department of Economics of the prestigious Jawaharlal Nehru University for 31 years. We are honored to have you on board, sir. We'll be beginning with the questions. Over to you, Shubhra. So the first question for today's episode is, what is black economy and is this black economy running parallel to white economy? Okay, so you have two questions. Uh, What is black economy? So black economy is uh, that part of an economy uh, which basically does not come into the tax net because some kind of illegality is involved. Uh, Now, to... uh, the illegality can be in legal activities as well as in illegal activities. So illegal activities are like narcotic drug trafficking and theft and crime and such like activities. And legal activities are you can be a doctor or tailor, you know, you can be agriculturist, you can be uh, anything. And you know, if as a doctor you see 50 patients but declare the income only of 20, then the income of 30 patients becomes black. So you've committed an illegality in a legal activity. So uh, there are both these aspects of the black economy, that is generation of black incomes in illegal activity as well as uh, black incomes in the legal activity. And when you say the black economy is parallel, what you imply is that it is parallel to the white economy. That means black economy and white economy don't meet. But that is not correct because in India, in most activities, black incomes and white incomes are generated uh, simultaneously. So like I give the example of the doctor who sees 50 patients and declares the income of 20 but not the income of 30. So the doctor is generating black income and white income simultaneously. Similarly, if you want to convert your uh, you know, white into black, you can go to a gurdwara uh, which gets a lot of cash every day and you can give them a check and take the cash from them. So your uh, white becomes black. Uh, similarly, you can go to the stock market and there, you know, somebody takes a profit and therefore their uh, black becomes white and somebody takes a loss. So their, uh, uh, you know, uh, white becomes black. So you can exchange black for white and white for black through taking profit and loss. So this shows that, you know, in the Indian economy, the black economy is not a parallel economy. It is simultaneously generated in, black, uh, you know, legal activity, illegal activity 
uh, and black incomes and white incomes are interconvertible. Yes, sir. So by now, I'm pretty sure that our listeners have got an idea of what black economy is and how black economy is not just limited to the formal sector. Sir, in 2016, India witnessed a demonetization where the notes of the nominations of 500,000 were demonetized. That means they were not considered as legal tender anymore. Many people faced repercussions of the same, and that is why it led to the questioning of the legitimacy of the government's move. It also led to national debates and discussions. Similarly, in 1978, a demonetization happened, and the highest denominations notes were demonetized. But we simply don't know anything about the 1978 demonetization. We never studied that in our history or economics books. So, sir, what do you think may be the reason behind the 1978 demonetization going into the oblivion, while the 2016 one sparked national debates and discussions? Yeah. So, you know, uh, there was demonetization done in 2016, before that in 78, and before that in 1946. So, in 78, you know, there were 1,000 rupees, 5,000 rupees, and 10,000 rupees notes, and they were demonetized. But their proportion of the total uh, money in circulation was only uh, less than one percent. I think uh, it was about half a percent. You know, now if you demonetize half a percent of the ca- currency, uh, then you know it doesn't have uh, much of an impact. So I remember uh, at that time uh, I was in college, and apart from hundred rupee note, I had not seen the thousand rupee or five thousand rupee note. And in my pocket, I used to have maybe one or two ten rupee notes and a few one rupee notes. And even if you went to fill a, a petrol in your scooter, it would cost you three or four rupees to uh, put the petrol in the, you know, scooter. So you know, at that time it did not cause disruption. But this time, now the 86 percent of currency was in uh, 2000 uh, in thousand rupee notes and 500 rupee notes. So if you take away 86 percent of the currency, then that will have a very significant impact. And you w- must realize that money is, uh, you know, like. Uh, uh you know blood in the body if you take away 86% blood from somebody's body then they are going to collapse so if you take away 86% of the money and money is used for circulating income so the income circulation they call me comes to a halt and when income circulation comes to a halt activity comes to a halt demand comes to a halt production comes to a halt especially the unorganized sector in the indian economy which employs 94% of the workforce produces 45% of the output that depends on cash so when you have such a large amount of activity coming to a halt so then you had the uh, millions and hundreds of millions of people affected by uh, this demonetization in a very adverse way and that's why the rate of growth of the economy came down and large number of people suffered as a result of this many people even died you know standing in queues etc some people were very upset that to get their own money they had to suffer this uh, problem So, sir, it won't be wrong to say that the majority of the people at that particular time did not even see the denominations of five thousand and ten thousand, and that played a big role in deciding the fate of the nineteen seventy-eight demonetization. And it's, I think it's because of that particular factor that it was not able to generate a greater impact as compared to the two thousand sixteen counterpart. So, as I said, <clears throat> you know. That was less than half a percent of the total currency in circulation, and you know uh, uh, hardly anybody used it. You know, 
so therefore it didn't affect the circulation of incomes in the economy but uh, in 19 uh, in 2016 because uh, these currency was 86% of the total currency in the circulation so the moment it got withdrawn all economic activity got affected you know and therefore it's the effect of the money on the circulation of income that is the important thing and in 78 it hardly affected the circulation of income you know whereas now it was a major component of the circulation of income and that's why it got affected so my next question would be on taxation and tax payer system in the country we tend to criticize the governments on the idea that they are not making any significant effort in making people aware about the importance of the taxes this happens with every central government regardless of the political affiliations we have statistics and data available pertaining to the eligible tax payers in the country however only a fraction of them actually pay the taxes why is that out of a good number of eligible people only few of them pay taxes and the rest of them simply get away with it avoiding the watchful eye of the government so you know india is uh, <clears throat> one of the uh, countries which have one of the lowest cash gdp ratio in the world that means of our gdp we collect a very small percentage especially our uh, you know direct taxes that percentage is only about 5.5% of the gdp so we collect very little of direct taxes in fact most developing countries also uh collect more uh, direct taxes than this and it's not a question of the rate it's a question of the honesty of the public you know after all tax is not something that you eat tax is something that the government spends on the society for a variety of things you know like the season etc at one point of time you had 85% tax rate but the black economy is only 1% because most people felt that the money is coming back to them in some form or the other so whether it be in the form of good education good health good infrastructure taxation etc in india people uh, don't see that you know people feel that they are paying taxes but they're not getting uh, anything in return and anyway you know there are uh, less than 1.5% uh, as the prime minister recently said only 15 million people are really effectively in the tax net so 15 million out of 1.35 billion means only 1.3% of indians are effectively paying uh, direct taxes you know income tax or corporation tax etc so it's a very narrow base so it's not a question of you know really the tax rate uh, if you had you know people paying their taxes honestly then uh, you know 62% which is black income generation today according to my estimate if that was brought into the tax net then the direct tax gdp ratio <clears throat> which is about 5.5% would have been about 25 30% you know and then you'd have had adequate money for education health etc etc so the question is why do people pay taxes honestly or why do people pay uh, or why do people not pay taxes honestly and i think this is where you know uh, it what you feel about your society how committed are you to society if you feel that you're getting from the, uh, the society then you'll honestly do it you know even if the tax rates are high because you see it coming back to you and in india where the tax rates are low but people feel that you know uh, other people are getting away especially the salaried employees feel that the business people are getting away and the business people feel that the richer people richer businessmen are getting away by not paying taxes so everybody has a sense of injustice that there's being injustice being done towards them and that's why everybody tries to find ways of evading the taxes and not paying the taxes honestly and that then means that our infrastructure poor whether it be education health roads etc and then people legitimately feel that they are paying tax but they are not getting anything in return 
and that's why they feel that if they are also able to evade uh, taxes somewhere, then that would be fine. So it's a, it's a question of an all-round degeneration that has taken place in the society because there is a sense of social injustice. So I think even Mr. Mukesh Ambani, who is a rich man, feels that there is injustice in society, and the man who sleeps uh, on the pavement under a you know flyover, uh, who has no home and has no assets, even he feels that there is injustice in society. So you know this feeling of injustice which is there results in uh, people feeling that you know why should they pay taxes? So those who can pay taxes are not paying their taxes. You know. Talking about taxes, the major thing that hits our mind is the conflict between centre and the states over the GST compensation fund and GST revenues. The centre says that the states should borrow on their own and the states imply that the onus solely falls on the government. What, according to you, can be the middle path adopted by the centre and the states which best suits India's needs at the moment? So, you know, we have to understand what is going on in the budget today. You know, the <clears throat> budget was formulated, the central budget on the premise that revenue will go at 10%, you know, uh, the, sorry, the GDP will grow at 10% and therefore the revenue will grow accordingly. Now, instead of growing at 10%, the economy is declining very rapidly and according to my estimate, the economy will decline by at least 20 to 30%. So, therefore, the budget figures are wrong by at least uh, 30 to 40 percent, you know, and that's why the revenue collection will be way down, and that's why you see the states will also suffer because 42 percent of whatever taxes are collected by the central passed on to the states, and GST collection is suffering, so the states get half of it and the center gets half of it, so the states are suffering as a result of GST being down. So this 2.35 lakh crore is based on certain assumptions. But I think the decline in the revenue will be much greater and therefore the centre would have to compensate the state for much larger amount than this 2.35 lakh crore. The centre is refusing saying that we are not collecting enough in the compensation uh, fund and we are only collecting 65,000 crore. So even though the shortfall is 3 lakh crore, you take 2.35 lakh crore because you will get 65,000 crore from the compensation test. But my feeling is so the shortfall will be much larger than 3 lakh crore on GST account. And then there will be a shortfall because, you know, out of the direct taxes and other taxes also, the states get 42%. So the states will be short not by 3 lakh crore, but more like 6-7 lakh crore. So there will be a big uh, hole in their uh, <clears throat> budget. And similarly, the centre's budget has a big hole because the centre is also collecting much less than what uh, they plan to collect. So both centre and states are in deep trouble. And therefore, they'd have to borrow. Now, the question is, where can they borrow? Uh, they can borrow from the banks, they can borrow from the wealthy people, and they can uh, get money from the Reserve Bank of India by monetization of the deficit. But uh, unfortunately, the government of India is telling the states to borrow. Now, the state's capacity to borrow is much less than that of the central government. And the uh, center can borrow at much lower interest rates. So it would be better for the center to borrow and pass it on to the state rather than make the states uh, borrow. And the second thing is that the uh, center is saying to the states that, you know, your uh, this compensation test will be continued beyond 2022 so that, you know, whatever is collected in the compensation test fund can be then used to pay off this 2.35 lakh crore or the 97,000 crore which is on offer. Now, yes, there is no guarantee because if the government is not paying them the 14% which was statutorily required to be paid under the GST Act, 
then what is the guarantee that this compensation set will be continued beyond 2022 there's no statutory commitment for that so therefore the state feel that you know the entire burden is being put on them whereas the central better able to bear that burden and pass on to the state so we have gone through your interviews and the major highlight of those interviews is that you talk about social revolutions you talk about social changes you talk about people being honest to fight black economy this has made our audience very keen on knowing what school of thought do you identify yourself with well uh, i believe that the uh, path shown by gandhi was the one that we need at this point of time where he talked about you know creating movement you know and uh, he talked about you know uh, how every person has to be accountable every person has to keep their head high and he said that if everybody keeps their head high then there be no uh, slavery uh, because if your head is held high then how can anybody rule you so that's why i have taken this from gandhi that you re- need social movements and you need uh, increase in the consciousness of everybody that you know if they become more conscious and they demand accountability from the system then you can tackle the black economy you can tackle the ills that prevail in society so we need to have a very good education system for that unfortunately our education system is very decrepit you know we learn by rote and we pass exams and then we forget so we don't build knowledge and uh, this mugging up system that is there in most of our exams doesn't really test the knowledge of the child doesn't see how much their knowledge has been absorbed by the child now if people are uh, thinking b and you know we suppress their thinking by this rote learning etc then they will simply do what is mechanically uh, told to them whereas if they are thinking and they are critical they think for themselves they see what is right what wrong what is in the long term interest of society then they'll do many things that they you know are necessary for society you know so what i'm suggesting are the social economic movement against corruption social economic movement for you know more accountability in the society and that's the way to go sir so when you're talking about fighting black economy you say that people need to realize what is right what is wrong there needs to be a change in the mindset of individuals so do you think the new education policy which also focuses on the personality development of individuals is going to act as a catalyst in bringing about a revolution so you know the uh, the new education policy that has been proposed is a very mechanical uh, one you know uh, it it doesn't really take the challenge you know what is the role of higher education in society it is to take the next generation to the cutting edge of knowledge and then move forward from the cutting edge of knowledge to generate new socially relevant knowledge and this is the challenge of knowledge generation and in my indian economy book i have dealt with this quite extensively but this new education policy doesn't solve that problem because the question is how do you generate socially relevant knowledge you know who will generate the socially relevant knowledge those who have been able to absorb the knowledge that is existing but if we are only going to promote rote learning and we are only going to learn mechanically then that new knowledge generation will not take place second is you need the teachers who are autonomous who are you know willing to take on the challenge of uh, good education and good research you know so for instance you know uh, 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 my head of the department come can't come to me and, and say today you have to give a good lecture or the vc can't come and say today you have to write a good paper 
it's not done like that it is coming from the commitment of the teacher and the commitment of the teacher that has been decimated by the way education is going and something that is not addressed by our new education policy you know accountability uh, is to the long term interest of society accountability is not to the market accountability is not just to the limited uh, interest of you know the the vice chancellor or the limited interest of the head of the department it is to the wider society and who can give that kind of accountability only the autonomous you know uh, uh, teacher the autonomous academic and therefore you know dissent is the essence of higher education you know in higher education you have to challenge the existing knowledge you know so for instance if everybody says that einstein is the last word then physics will not advance if everybody says that amartya sen or samuelson is the last word then how can knowledge advance so we have to be critical yes, of the existing knowledge and when we are critical of the existing knowledge then only will be advanced knowledge now in the university system what happens is that when you are critical then you are seen as a trouble maker and therefore you are suppressed so those who are the ones who will be the most dynamic are the ones who are seen to be trouble makers and you know there is a bureaucratization of the mindset of a lot of academics you know especially in the senior positions they all want to be vice chancellors principals deans etc you know so as to be able to rule so their interest in knowledge generation and socially relevant knowledge generation is very little so they suppress the independent minded thinkers and when you suppress the independent minded thinkers then things will not happen and so this new education policy confused in that vein by saying you will have a cadre of you know uh, uh, teachers and we'll have a cadre of the uh, people who will you know uh, govern and we'll train them this all lead to cronyism you know people who are psychopaths of those who are in power they'll be the ones who will promote rather than independent thinkers the people who generate uh, new knowledge you know then they are saying that we'll have you know ideal universities which other universities will copy but that's not the way new knowledge will be generated originality has to be originality you know jnu cannot be harvard jnu cannot be cambridge harvard has to be harvard and jnu has to be jnu if jnu tries to copy harvard it'll be a copy it will not be original so therefore it's it's a contradiction in terms to say that you copy harvard you copy cambridge you know originality cannot be copied so every institution has to be its own and has to develop its courses has to develop its own characteristics you can't have a common syllabus so you know one of the things that in in the indian system we thought of is how to achieve standards and for that the ideal thing they can think of is have standardization so have standardized courses have standardized seating have you know various kind of standardization but in in higher education you need diversity you need people to think along different lines then new ideas will come you know like for instance i'll quote you know uh, professor higgs uh, who discovered the uh, god particle you know the w boson uh, he wrote a paper yes, in 1960s and he got a, a nobel prize in uh, 2012 or thereabout and you know he said for the first 16 years when cambridge asked him what is the research he has done you write i have not published any paper and he said in today's cambridge i would never get a job but he wrote a seminal paper which got a nobel prize so there are different models of research some people do three papers a year somebody will write a good book in three years somebody will do seminal papers in 10 years and many people trying to write a seminal paper or a seminal book may not be able to do much but you have to allow that so there'll be wastage okay so you have to have a very liberal system of education not a regimented one and the new education policy think of regimentation standardization and things like that so it's not really uh, going for autonomy of academic the way it should you know in our system we think of autonomy of the principal of the vice chancellor 
but then the principal and the vice chancellor doesn't give autonomy downward the teachers have to be psychopaths of the vice chancellor and the teach, uh, the principal you know now only those who are not independent thinkers will do that then they will get promotion and that will undermine the independent academics will be always seen as troublemakers because they disagree you know in principle on various things so you know our whole system is bureaucratized you know our academics mindset is also very bureaucratized and that's what you see in this report it has you know picked up a lot of things from here and there what we all have been criticizing you know it has picked up all that and put it bunged it into the report but it's not really uh, taken on the challenge of knowledge generation and socially relevant knowledge generation and of how you know the new knowledge will be generated how the autonomy is essential so it talks about autonomy but undermines autonomy you know and it talks about accountability but it's not the accountability to the long term interest of society so compared to the other developing countries the tax rate imposed by the indian government is low do you think that this phenomenon results into an explanation of the black market and do you think with the increase in the tax rates and the decrease in non taxable income limit india's major problems like poverty corruption hunger etc would finally come to an end so you know as i was saying to earlier there is a, a feeling of social injustice you know in society you know everybody feels that you know they're not getting from society what is their due so as i said you know uh, mr mukesh ambani may feel that and the man who's sleeping on the streets may feel that and the middle class feels that the business people are not paying taxes the business people feel that the bigger businessmen are not paying their taxes so everybody feels that and then you know because we have very poor uh, our social infrastructure like education health etc and lot of the rich people send their children abroad for education you know and many of them did go abroad for their health things also so they don't feel like contributing to society so there's a lot of alienation in society and this alienation uh, in our society is what undermines you know our feeling towards our society so as i was saying earlier is this sense of social injustice and alienation because of which people don't want to pay taxes but if you look at it the rich people are the ones who benefited enormously and that's why inequality has increased most of the benefit of development has gone to them but they feel that that is their hard work they don't see that that coming from the system the system which has made it very unequal so you know we don't have a policies on which everybody is agreed there is a lack of consensus on policy and especially among the elite section and therefore they feel uh, injustice is being done to them they want to gain more and more i mean think about it this way that japan is you know per capita income is maybe 25 times ours but it has fewer billionaires than india has so why is it that you know a country which is uh, much richer has fewer billionaires because there the policies are much more equitable in india our policies are much more inequitable where some people have been gaining a lot at the expense of uh, others and that's why we have 94% people in the unorganized sector working at very low income and we can see how they have suffered during this pandemic you know they could not sustain themselves even for a week and they were willing to walk a thousand kilometers so there's a huge injustice towards the poor but even the well off sections feel that there there's injustice you know the <clears throat> salaried class feels injustice the businessmen feel injustice and that's why everybody tries to make money illegally to uh, some other means you know those who are in the elite segments of society all right sir so with regards to the policy the central government initiated a policy in 2016 called the income declaration scheme under which the people had to declare the assets that they possess 
it was designed to counter the black money in the economy however it failed miserably and got a very tepid response so sir what do you think why such a policy failed which factor affected the proper implementation of the ids was it a complacent governance structure or something else that played a phenomenal role in that so you know the income declaration scheme is something uh, where the government felt that by giving certain concessions they could get <coughs> black money converted into white and that would help in the development that was what was also underlying the voluntary disclosure scheme but after 1997 because the government gave an undertaking in the supreme court that there would be no more voluntary disclosure scheme that's why before demonetization in the month of uh, may uh, income declaration scheme was declared but very little money came under that you know so the government tried to scare people by saying look we have large amount of data on all the high value transactions after 2008 9 and we'll use computers to you know uh, do it so they claimed that they had some like 93 million uh, transactions of high value uh, added uh, in their computers and nothing came of that and then they had to do demonetization then under demonetization also there was another income declaration scheme that also you know and the reason is very simple that those who generate black income they feel that they have hidden the track very well and because there are 90 tax havens they can take their money out of the country and then bring it back to the mauritius route etc what in what is called round tripping so you know it's not easy to track because you know this hawala route that is taken goes through six different layers so you take your money out from here to say hawaii from there to bermuda from there to jersey island then to cayman island and then to switzerland or then you bring it back uh, to the mauritius route you know so tracking these six routes is very difficult and that's why even though lakhs of people uh, who are the rich who take their money out of the country hardly a few thousand ever get caught and they also are not prosecuted as we can see the sit court uh, appointed sit which was the first act of the modi government that has not been successful in the in spite of six uh, years uh, having gone past you know in tracking the money that was supposed to have gone out earlier so it's very difficult to track this uh, because you know the the uh, businessmen are clever they use clever chartered accountants and income tax lawyers to hide the trail of the money so in india itself there are a large number of shell companies the government claimed after demonetization that they closed down some 3 and a half lakh shell companies also and still you know the shell companies keep bushrooming they they are used you know every big businessman has hundreds of companies you know so when uh, satyam was uh, caught and satyam was closed it was found they had some like 600 companies you know through which money was being circulated so you know it's very difficult between these companies and the income tax rules and the chartered accountants and the tax havens to catch this kind of thing that's why you know we need a consensus uh, amongst our elite ruling group that we won't generate black income that there'll be a sense of you know accountability to the system and that will come only when the public stands up and the public demands accountability then only will the politicians act then only will the bureaucrats act and then only the judiciary and the police will act properly and if they begin to act properly then the businessmen will act properly and they will not generate uh, black income thank you sir for being on board with us and delivering such an informative podcast session on black economy it was indeed a delight having you with us today thank you audience for listening to us and for more information and insights into professor arun kumar's research work on black economy you can definitely check out his book 
demonetization and black economy available on various e-commerce websites and bookstores across India. So with this, we come to the end of the episode and stay tuned for yet another episode of The Bigger Picture.